Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Would you turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 21? We are in verses 1 through 8. This is the third to last sermon in our series in the book of Revelation. Today, let's dive into the word in the book of Revelation. We encounter four different ages. We encounter four different ages in the study of Revelation. In chart form, it looks something like this. Chapters one through three are the church age, and that's where we find ourselves right now. We are the church. Birthed at Pentecost, all right, we're waiting for the rapture. We are in the church age. Church age ends with the rapture. Chapters 4 through 19 are the seven-year tribulation age. We spend a lot of time talking about that section of Revelation because it is the longest. It ends with the second coming of Jesus and his victory in the battle of Armageddon. Chapter 20 is the kingdom age, the kingdom age. And we've spent uh, several sermons talking about what that 1,000-year millennial reign of Jesus will be like here on the earth. And that ends with the squashing of Satan's final rebellion and the great white throne judgment. And that brings us to the final two chapters, the eternal age in chapters 21 and 22. So everybody see how that all kind of fits together and how we got from where we were to where we are today. And the first thing that we need to know about the eternal age is that it is characterized by the word new. The word new, that is the theme for the day. But it is a certain kind of new. It comes from the Greek word kainos, kainos, which means new in character or new in quality rather than just new in time. So this is not simply in terms of being what's next in a chronological sense. Rather, this is new as in better. In our consumer culture, we would say new and improved, right? That's the kind of newness that we're talking about today. And so in light of this particular kind of newness, we want to address the question this morning, what exactly is new in the eternal age? What exactly is new in the eternal age? And that question will be answered in our text this morning, Revelation 21, 1 through 8. And I got to tell you, after all the stuff that we went through during the tribulation and the three waves of judgment, what a breath of fresh air it is for us to land on this passage, which honestly is probably the most positive, uplifting, hopeful passage in all of the Bible. And so if you kind of came dragging yourself here this morning with a cloud over your head and a lot of heaviness, my prayer is just let the word of God wash over your heart this morning and do its work. So would you please stand with me as I read the text this morning? Revelation 21, 1 through 8. The Apostle John writes, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, thank you for bringing us to this point in our study And no matter what is said this morning, words will not do justice to exactly what is represented here in this picture. But God, would you just grow us in our understanding and in our vision for what this is going to look like? And may that vision and that understanding, may that drive us to renewed hope and energy as we live in the here and now renewed expectation for what it means that you are creating a place for us and it is entirely new. God, encourage someone, encourage all of us today with these words we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So we are addressing the question, what exactly is new in the eternal age. And there's quite a list here that we're going to work our way through. And the first thing that the text tells us will be new is a new heaven, a new heaven. Look at verse 1, where the Apostle John says, Then I saw a new heaven. At which point it is important for us to define that term heaven, because if we don't get that right, we're going to come to some faulty conclusions. There are actually three heavens mentioned in the scriptures, and the first heaven is actually the atmosphere. It's the atmosphere. It's the blue sky that we've enjoyed so much in the last three weeks or so and that we're going to miss so much come December, January, February, March, April, anyway. Um, the blue sky that we have just enjoyed so much, it's where birds fly, it's, it's where we have air to breathe, it is the atmosphere, that is the first heaven. The second heaven is outer space, where there are planets and stars and galaxy, it's that place, remember when Captain Kirk said, space, the final frontier, right? Now, as we're going to see today, he was wrong about that. It is not the final frontier. But there is currently a great civilian effort underway, isn't it there, to travel from the first heaven to the second heaven? Um, Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson, this new space race that's taking place, not by governments and countries, but by private individuals. But that is the second heaven, outer space. But then, as we know, there is a third heaven, The third heaven is God's abode, the place where he dwells. 
which was so graphically depicted, if you remember back in chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation, where the Apostle John had a vision of God's throne room. So the question we need to answer is that when John says that he saw a new heaven, to what is he referring? What's he talking about? Is he talking about the atmosphere? Is he talking about outer space? Is he talking about God's abode? What exactly is new? And the answer is numbers one and two. He's talking about a new atmosphere. He's talking about a new outer space. In short, a new universe, but not a new third heaven. The place where God dwells is not to be made new. It needs not to be made new because it has not been infected by sin. So that's the first thing that is new in the eternal age is a new heaven. There will be a new atmosphere. There will be a new outer space, new galaxies, a new universe, but not new in the sense of God's abode. Number two, the second thing that's new in the eternal age is a new earth. Look again at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Which raises a question that we um, addressed briefly last week. We're going to talk about it again because it comes up here in our text. Will the first earth, this one, be renovated or will it be recreated? Now, those of you who were with us last week, how would you answer that question? Renovated or recreated? recreated. All right. So we could say, is this a remodel or is this a demo and a rebuild? And the answer is it is recreated. It is the demo and rebuild after the first heaven and earth, which were infected by sin. And that's the key have been destroyed. Now, how do we know this to be true? Well, because scripture says so in some powerful ways, we go back to second Peter three, verse 12. It says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Again, a one in which righteousness dwells. Further, the psalmist said in Psalm 102, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, but you will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. And then even Jesus himself spoke of the destruction of the old heavens and the old earth in Luke 21.33. He said, heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. So here's the thing. Here's what's going on here. As the kingdom age ends at the end of chapter 20, and the eternal age begins at the beginning of chapter 21, everything tainted by sin has been removed. It's gone. Sinners, demons, Satan, the Antichrist, The false prophet, all been cast into the lake of fire, and now the universe itself having been tainted by sin has also passed away, setting the stage for a brand new creation, a brand new heaven and earth that is without sin. Thank God. Now, the one thing that's a bit of a head-scratcher about the new earth, and I, I confess I don't completely understand it, is the new earth has no sea. Did you notice that? 
The new earth has no sea. Look again at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Quite a departure from our current earth, isn't it? 71% of our current earth is covered by water, but not on the new earth. It says the sea is no, no more. Anybody bummed by that? You, know, you just love the ocean, and it's like, wow, no ocean? What's up? With, how can it be heaven without ocean? Um, well, here's the thing. I don't think it means that there won't be bodies of water. I, I, I believe there will be um, lakes and rivers, but there does seem to be an absence of these expansive oceans. And I think that could potentially be for a couple of reasons. And I admit that this is speculation. All right, everybody hear me there? This is speculation. First, if we look at our present earth, seas tend to separate people. Seas tend to separate people. Now, that's becoming less and less with air travel and cruise ships and things like that. But historically speaking, as we look at the history of the globe, seas have separated people from one continent to another. And even the Apostle John, as he's writing this down, where is he? He's on the island of Patmos, and he is separated by water on the old earth. Separation is not a word that characterizes the new earth, where there will instead be unhindered fellowship and unity. And as we're going to see in a few moments, we will live together in a city, the new Jerusalem, without separation. So that is one possible reason that there is no sea on the new earth. The second possible reason is seas elicited fear in the ancient world and were associated with evil and with death. You know, if you lived at the time of the Apostle John, bad things happened at sea. Storms, shipwrecks, pirates, sea monsters, okay? It was, it was just the great unknown, a place of great terror. But in the new earth, there will be no evil. There will be no death or fear or terror, or anything associated with it, and certainly no sea monsters, okay? So with those are two possible reasons why there will be no sea on the new earth. Again, speculation, it isn't clear. At any rate, the absence of seas would seem to support the idea that the old earth no longer exists, right? It's like, ooh, that's a pretty big difference between the current earth and the new earth, no longer any seas. We're talking about something brand new, all right? So, what exactly is new in the eternal age? We have a new heaven, we have a new earth, and then thirdly, we have a new Jerusalem. A new Jerusalem in verse 2. John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And next week is all about the new Jerusalem, so we're not going to talk a lot about that today. It really is the subject of the rest of chapter 21. But for now, it's enough to know that this is what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 14 when he said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to be, take you to myself. Again, I believe that that is the rapture that where I am, you may be also. I believe that the new Jerusalem is that place that Jesus has prepared for us. It exists in heaven right now. And the new Jerusalem is actually the current home of believers who have died. When we say heaven, 
I believe what we're really talking about here is the new Jerusalem. That's where they are. They're waiting for us, eager to show us all around. And here in Revelation 21, at the beginning of the eternal age, the the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, is descending from the third heaven to the new earth in such stunning beauty that it could only be described by the most extremely beautiful thing that could be thought of, which is a bride adorned for her husband. Such is the beauty of this city. Couldn't be any more spectacular or beautiful. Again, we're going to talk much, much, much more about the New Jerusalem next week. So what exactly is new in the eternal age? We have a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. And in regard to the list, what I think is most important that I will talk about the most this morning is, number four, a new intimacy. A new intimacy, specifically a new intimacy with God. And this really is the best part of the eternal age. All right, look at verse 3. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Take a moment to just digest that statement. God will dwell with them. The most important thing you can say about the new earth is this. It's what makes heaven heaven. It's not streets of gold that makes it heaven. It's not rewards that makes it heaven. It's God. It's his presence there dwelling with us. The fact that he is there. And this idea of God dwelling with his people, that's been God's desire and design from the very beginning, has it not? Think about the, how God has dwelt with his people throughout the scriptures. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden. And I love that concept of God walking with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. What a picture of intimacy that God enjoys with Adam and Eve, that Adam and Eve enjoy with God. A wonderful example of the unhindered fellowship that took place in the garden. Didn't last, though, did it? Why? Because sin entered the picture. And instead of having this intimacy, Adam and Eve hid from God in shame and guilt. It had been very easy at that point for God to give up on dwelling with his people, right? But what did he do? He didn't give up, for he instituted then something called the tabernacle, which we spent quite a bit of time studying, and I hope it gives us even greater appreciation and understanding about what this means here. God initiated and made a way to dwell even with sinful human beings through necessary sacrifices and rituals and then a tent that contained his presence in the Holy of Holies. He dwelt among them in and through the tabernacle. And then that idea of the tabernacle was then ultimately fulfilled by Jesus. John chapter 1 verse 14 And the word became flesh and did what? Dwelt among us. And again, those of you who know any any Greek or have heard passages or sermons on this passage, you know that that word dwelt really is tabernacled. He tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. And then it went even a step further. When Jesus died on the cross, 
What happened with the tabernacle slash temple? What happened? The veil which represented separation between man and God, God and man, was torn in two, signifying a new level of fellowship between God and man. And then when Jesus ascended to heaven, he sent his spirit. His spirit, the Holy Spirit, which would now dwell within us, which means that in the church age where we find ourselves, we are God's temple, the place where he dwells. And that's outstanding. That's mind-boggling when you think about it because we are able to experience a special kind of fellowship with him. But, but, there is still sin and therefore a degree of separation. Commentator Warren Wiersbe says it like this. He says, Even though God dwells in believers today by his spirit, we still have not begun to understand God or fellowship with him as we would like. But one day we shall dwell in God's presence and enjoy him forever. And that one day that Wiersbe is talking about is what is being described in our text today. It's the dawn of the eternal age where in the eternal age there will be no sin to separate. There will be no sin to separate. And we will experience what the psalmist described in Psalm 1611. He says, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, What exactly is new in the eternal age? There's a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a new intimacy. And number five, a new existence. A new existence that is marked only by goodness. Look at verse four. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Anybody want to go right now? Can you imagine what that's going to be like? John attempts to describe the goodness of the new earth. But the only way he can do it, it's just so beyond our understanding. The only way he can do it is to contrast it with this old earth. And by telling us what it is not. And so he first of all says that there will be no more tears. No more tears. There are a lot of tears shed in the Bible. That'd be an interesting book. If you were to just trace through the scriptures all of the tears that are shed in the Bible. And there are a lot of tears shed in our lives today, are there not? Some of you wept this week for various reasons. So it is that on an earth this earth in which we live that is under a curse of sin where there is so much pain, so much suffering, so much disappointment and loss, that will not be the case in the eternal age. Why? Because there would be nothing to cry about. There will be no sadness, no disappointment, no tragedy. Everything will be right as it should be. And think for a moment about how encouraging that would have been to John's audience. They read this a certain way that's maybe different than we do. Think about if you're a believer in Afghanistan this morning and you're reading this text. Again, you're reading it a little bit differently, aren't you? 
But we all have our moments. We all have when we get that diagnosis or we hear about that tragedy or that hard thing and we read this and it just reads differently when you're going through seasons like that. The Lord gives us a glimpse of the wonderful goodness that is to come in the eternal age where there will be no more tears. Next, he says there's no more pain. Who's hurting this morning? Yeah, who's not hurting this morning? Maybe that's a better way to ask the question. You know, physical pain, that's not the only kind of pain, is there? Emotional pain, relational pain, spiritual the list goes on and on. We are a people who experience profound pain on this old earth because it is under a curse of sin. And church, I got to tell you, it's overwhelming sometimes to stand right here and to look upon you and to consider the collective pain that is represented in a group like this. But the good news of our text today is that the day is coming when our pain will absolutely be a thing of the past. For in the goodness of the eternal age, there will be no more pain. Next, John says that there will be no more death, which makes perfect sense. Um, Why is there no more death? Because there's no more sin. And the wages of sin is death. There's only the goodness of the eternal age, which will go on forever and ever and ever. And so... We have this totally new existence to look forward to, which so much about it that we don't understand, but we know what it's not, right? It's not tears. It's not pain. And it's not death. That's good enough for me at this point. How about you? So what exactly is new in the eternal age? A new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a new intimacy, a new existence, a new everything. How's that for theological specificity, right? A new, a new everything. But look at verse 5. It says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. All things new. You all know how excited I get when connections are made in the Scriptures, right? Especially between Old Testament and New Testament. Here's another one. Okay, wonderful symmetry between the Testaments. We have a wonderful example of that today. Look at this chart, which illustrates the connection between Genesis 3 and Revelation 21. In Genesis 3, we had paradise lost, but in Revelation 21, we have paradise regained. In Genesis 3, heaven and earth were created, but in Revelation 21, we have a new heaven and a new earth. In Genesis 3, the sun created. In Revelation 21, there's no more sun. We'll talk about that more in the weeks to come. Genesis 3, night is established. Revelation 21, there is no more night. Genesis 3, the seas are created. Revelation 21, no more seas. Genesis 3, the curse is announced. In Revelation 21, there is no more curse. In Genesis 3, death enters history. In Revelation 21, there is no more death. And in Genesis 3, sorrow and pain begins because of sin. But in Revelation 21, there are no more tears and no more pain. Isn't that beautiful? The Bible has 66 different books written by about 40 different authors over 1,500 years. And yet it all comes down to this. 
one coherent unit, one coherent story. It's almost like there's a single author, isn't there? Because there is. And he is the one who is making all things new. All right, let's wrestle with one more question today that wraps things up. Who exactly gets to experience all of this goodness, all of this newness in the eternal age of the new heaven and the new earth? Who gets to be part of this? Well, the passage makes a distinction between two groups. It's a stark distinction. Those who will be in and those who will be out. And you may say, Chad, that language of in and out, that's kind of cold, isn't it? It's kind of crass. But that's really what the text says. That's how the text describes it. It gives a group that's in and a group that's out. You're either in or you're out. It's that simple. It's meant to be that either or. So let's look at, first of all, those who are in, verses 6 and 7. And the first thing it says about those who are in is they are the thirsty. They are the thirsty. Look at verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. I think this could probably be a sermon in and of itself. What does it mean to be thirsty? I think, first of all, it means you recognize your present lack your present lack, your present need, your present desperation, because a thirst that goes unquenched results in what? It'll ultimately result in dehydration and death. You don't mess with thirst. Thirst has to be resolved, otherwise it ends in death. These are people, the thirsty, who are desperate and recognize that they cannot save themselves, that their salvation can only come through the living water that Jesus can provide. And they're desperate for it. They're thirsty for it. John chapter 7, verse 37 says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And I think this is a good checkpoint for us this morning, church. Those who are in, those who will experience the goodness of the new age are those who thirst for God. And if you're not thirsty this morning, it's probably a good occasion to do a heart check, a good occasion to do a heart check. Because the other thing it tells me is that for those who thirst, Jesus will satisfy. And not only does Jesus satisfy, it's not to meant for us to be an end in and of itself, but that living water is meant to flow from us to others. Amen. To what degree, church, is your thirst resulting in living water that comes and quenches the thirst of your soul but then flows to others, that is the description of those who are in. I might also say, going back to the, the new intimacy, if you find yourself really apathetic about time spent with God, about time spent with his people, that is another opportunity for heart check to say, whoa, wait a second. The text tells us that those who are in are those who are thirsty. Next, 
The text says that those who will be in are the conquerors in verse 7. The conquerors. It says the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. We've seen this phraseology used even back in the letters to the churches. To the one who overcomes. To the one who conquers. Who are the overcomers? Who are the conquerors? John told us in his first epistle. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes or conquers the world. And this is the victory that has overcome or conquered the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So here's the thing. We don't conquer and overcome because we're so tough and because we're so gifted We conquer and overcome because we have faith in the one who ultimately conquered and who ultimately overcame. We are simply overcomers and conquerors by virtue of the fact that we belong to him. We overcome because he overcame. We conquer because he conquered. And that relationship is a relationship of faith. And so, who exactly gets to experience the goodness of the eternal age? Those who are in, those who are thirsty. Church, are you thirsty this morning? And those who are conquerors. Well, then who are those who will be out? Verse 8 tells us. It says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, Sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Anybody been guilty of any of those sins? A few of you? My hand is up for certain. Especially if we take those sins and we look at them through the filter of what Jesus described in the Sermon on the Mount. His understanding of what those sins mean is much broader a lot of times than what we think it means in a narrow sense. I believe if we're honest, we're all guilty. We're all guilty. And without a Savior, our guilt means what? It's judgment. Judgment in the lake of fire. So we're all in this boat without a Savior, but thanks be to God. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Saved from the wrath of God. Of God. This terrible scenario of those who are out that we just read about in verse 8. If you know Jesus, it doesn't apply to you. Saved from the wrath of God and prepared for the eternal age where there's a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a new intimacy, a new existence, in short, a new everything. So would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Oh, Father, we just say, come quickly. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. 
Deliver us from this old earth that is cursed by sin, that leads to so much pain and sorrow and heartache and tears and death. We are a hurting people. And would you give us a fresh vision this morning that our hurt, our pain is but temporary and that we have the goodness of the eternal age to look forward to forever and ever and ever. But Father, I would pray this morning for any of those who are verse 8 people. They are guilty of these sins, but they do not yet thirst and have not yet tasted living water. They are not yet classified as overcomers or conquerors because they don't know the overcomer or the conqueror. God, would you bring conviction to their hearts this morning? And God, for those of us who may be um, guilty of apathy, we're not real thirsty this morning. We would profess to know Jesus. We prayed a prayer once upon a time, but there just isn't a lot of thirst isn't a lot of hunger for the things of God or for even the things of God's people and for fellowship. God, would you do a fresh work in us this morning? Living water, would you wash over us? Would you, would you flow through us? We desperately need that this morning and pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. amen.